and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week, my guest is author and screenwriter, Tade Thompson. Now, I have to admit, Tade has been one of my wish list guests right from the very beginning. When I came up with the concept of this podcast, I hoped that one day I'd be able to interview people of the caliber of Tade Thompson. The fact that I've managed to actually sit down and interview the man in less than a year of podcasting is a massive privilege. And one of my proudest moments is the fact that he really enjoyed the interview and the kind comments he says at the end. Um, I don't want to wax lyrical too much about it, but yeah, this is just an absolute joy. I'm so, so happy to be able to bring you uh, this episode. For those who haven't read any of Tade's work, please do. Uh, the Rosewater trilogy is how I uh, was introduced, but his latest science fiction called Far From the Light of Heaven is fantastic. Absolute great read. Basically, if it has his name on it, read it. He's a fantastic writer. He's a really interesting man. He has really interesting things to say. He has a very unique way of working compared to other guests that I've had on. So a really good listen. There's nothing more to say. Here's the episode. And I'm here with Tade Thompson. Tade, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And my first question, as always, what are we drinking? Tonight we'll be drinking tea. I'm going to have black tea, but I'm also going to have hibiscus tea. I've got my special tea diffuser, yes. With uh, I've got this gentleman who helps me hold this special <laughs> infuser into the cup. So that is beautiful. So I will try and describe it for the listeners. It's a little stick figurine with a long body, which is the infuser, and then the arms just reach over the edge of the mug. So it's just a, a little man poking out on the side of the mug. Yes. Uh, very endearing, very nice. And uh, yes, it's uh, I'm lactose intolerant, so I'm always having to get milk substitutes when people choose tea. So having black tea is an absolute joy. Okay, um, excellent. So yes, anyway, cheers. Cheers. Mm. And where I'm speaking to you now, is this your writing room? Is this your office? This is where I write from, yes, most of the time. this It's a study. It's basically a converted garage. I've got a skylight. I've got really good illumination, as you can imagine. I've got custom-built shelves behind me. And as you can see, they're running out because <laughs> I am a complete book addict. Excellent. Um, I read everything. The books seem to talk to each other and multiply. They get married, <laughs> they get divorced, they have children, all of that. <laughs> this is where I do most of my writing. But sometimes I go to cafes very occasionally. Okay. Um, I do. I tend to do revisions there. I don't write new stuff in cafes. Okay. I go there when I don't have to concentrate so much. Okay. So, Just a white noise space away from household distractions. Yeah, sometimes. What happens... The, the way I make myself work is when I go to a cafe, I lie to myself that, ha, everybody else is playing, but I'm actually working. It's what I need to move myself along sometimes. So if I start thinking I'm getting stagnant and if the words are moving like sludge, I go to a cafe briefly just to get a charge of, hey, look, I'm working, everybody else isn't. And then I come back and, I, and then it's fine. <laughs> okay. And so... How long have you had this converted garage as, as a study? Has this been for quite a long time or is this a more recent thing? No, this is more recent. And by recent, I mean, I did it just about a year before the pandemic. And what is okay. time anymore? Because I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. you know, 
even when the pandemic started, mm. but I've had this from about a year before the pandemic. Prior to that, I was working in my attic and the attic, I mean, it, it was big. I liked it and everything, but anybody could just pop up and come and see me. It was convenient. So anybody would just pop up and when you're writing something, someone just pops up and interrupts your flow. They don't realize you have to actually stop and then get back into the mood and get right. back into it. Like, oh, it's just a second or so. Could you tell, do you want, do you like this color or this color for the garden shed or whatever the hell? People didn't realize that. Okay, look, you need to leave a guy alone when he's writing something. So I realized, okay, I need somewhere else. So I paid someone to fix this place up because I'm not very good with the, you know, the, um, you know, DIY. I mean, when I do it, I am, but I have this thing where I say, look, find the person who knows how to do the thing and let that person do it. Absolutely. This, you know, I can paint, I can saw wood and stuff like that, but it wouldn't look as good as this does. Yeah. And I probably run into problems here and there. So I'm like, look, get someone who knows how to do it, let them do it. I grew up in a household where I had a very short-tempered father who was very bad at DIY. And it really led me as this, that's not a way to live your life. <laughs> it was just like, just save up the money, find a payment plan, just do, do, find Get your way. To do it, yes. Yeah. I think there's a problem with those of us who grew up, you know, in a certain era where it's expected of males to be able to hammer nails. Mm. It, it is a kind of identity thing, like something needs to be done, now I'll do it myself. And you'll be forgiven for it being slightly wonky, but like, yeah, 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 you know, you're a man. And I'm like, nope, not doing any of that. Yeah. I'm just, I need something done. I pay someone, do it right. You That's know. it. Stimulate the economy. That's what we need to do these days. <laughs> So, you know, there are people who need the work and we shall support yeah. them. We shall support the local workers. Exactly. <laughs> Although my architect yeah. did, because I got an architect just to be sure about everything. And he actually made a mistake. He made a roofing mistake that even I wouldn't have made. Oh, wow. um, but there you go. This thing happens. Okay. It has unique charm. Exactly. L little idiosyncrasies that just make it a home. And so this is far more cut off from the house. So the family understand that when you're away or in do they theory, not respect it <laughs> in theory in actual fact they just still just turn off whenever they want to it, it's different it's less i get fewer interruptions than before so it's different but i still get the interruptions and all that i just realize okay either i lock the door and don't attend to anyone or and this is family life and writing i just you yeah. know roll with yeah and i want to focus on the uh, initial planning of your stories now as yeah. you're someone who's written both short form and, and longer forms and you know well known for your novels when you are getting an idea does it initially come to you as a sort of scenario based or is it a character or as you've recently done off world is it more like a technology that you want to explore or a, a aspect of a, a world or an alien race i don't do any of that that's no? not how that's not how it works okay. at all so basically you have the book itself, you have to write and you have the ideas. I actually see them as separate things. And I see that if you, the way I see it is if you are a working writer, and I'm not talking about someone who is a hobbyist, mm. but if you're a working writer who writes and gets paid for writing and is expected to produce fairly regularly, then you have to produce ideas fairly regularly. And I do that on Sunday. So every Sunday I sit down and I come up with 20 ideas. Wow. And I, I basically, here's, this is my current notebook. Right. And to my right over here are the piles of notebooks I've been using for a very long time. And I do it longhand. I don't use a computer because I get distracted. And I basically just write out the ideas like this. Okay. Till I get to number 20. And then I stop for the day. The next okay. Sunday, I do the same thing. And I can read some of them out. Where it came from was that there is someone who came up with this thing where that says, if you 
come up with 20 iterations of the same idea, at some point you'll be able to find something in the 20, mm. even if it's just one thing. If you want, I can read these random ones. If it... Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Just, it will show you how silly they are. Okay, no, you know, that's but, good. Uh, you know, but this is basically, this is how it comes out. Okay, idea one, out on the piss. And when vomits on the side of the pub, money comes out. The cost of the booze, nothing life-changing. So however much booze you took, the money, the vomit turns into that money yeah. and go and recycle it if you want to. Two, still on the, the theme of vomiting, synchronized vomiting. Synchronized body function is all who went out on the same night. Three, auto-intoxication from any fluid from that night onwards. Like anything, any kind of liquid, the person gets intoxicated from it. Four, heaven as a kind of personal utopia, solo utopia, individual utopia. Five, temporary storage of the mind in case of risky procedure of life, war or combat. The mind sinks into the celiac plexus via the vagus nerve. Okay. So if the brain blows up, the person can regrow their brain. So basically their nerves in the gut. So the brain can sink into yeah. those nerves. And if you cut the person's head off or you shoot them in the head, the brain can still be regrown so the person right. doesn't have to die. Six, the auditor, metaphysical auditor who try, who turns up once a year to audit your karma. Doesn't do anything. That's a different department. That's so on. Yeah. So I, so every Sunday, it used to be Wednesday, but I realized that Wednesday wasn't working so well because I'd be tired maybe from work. So I wasn't, I was struggling to get 20 ideas. So Sunday was better. I'd start from the morning and leave my notebook open and start writing them in. And usually what I get from there, most of the time it's stuff that enriches a longer narrative. Sometimes it's an idea that is unique enough to stand on its own as in, okay, this is a book mm. or this is a short story. So it basically, if anybody were to walk up to me now, an editor and say, well, look, I'm doing an anthology of these kind of stories. Do you want to contribute something? I'll then I'll get my notebooks and I'll flip through and see if I have any idea that might be strong enough for that. And then I might agree to that theme because I've got something for the theme, but I don't, if I don't have anything for the theme, I don't write things for the theme. So I have separated the idea, idea acquisition process from the actual writing. When I then decide to choose a project, I will, I will then sit down and say, okay, fine. What do I want to do next? I've got all of these ideas. Which one am I picking? What do I need to write next? Am I writing a short story or a novel? And if I'm writing a short story, okay, which one am I writing? So the last short story I wrote was for an anthology of, it's about witches and all of that. And I had some ideas for that already that were, let's not use unique because no idea is truly unique, but that's a fairly unfamiliar you know, an idea that's fairly unfamiliar and everything. And I just kind of wrote that. And I love the way it came out because I was able to then take that one idea, break it up into several different things and then start writing. And as you write it, it morphs into other things. It never really resembles the old thing that you mm. started, but you know, those ideas are really seeds for further thinking of the brain, you know? So once I've decided on an idea, I then basically sit down and I write it longhand. And my writing again is it's, I do it as a job. So I wake up in the morning, I wake up at about six o'clock and I write till about seven or seven thirty every day, new stuff. When I'm revising, I tend to do that either in the afternoon or in the evening, but in the morning when I am fresh, when nobody has planted any seeds in my head, nobody has annoyed me. I haven't annoyed anyone. There's no emotional baggage. It's the best time for me to write mm. new stuff. And I do that. And even if all you write is a paragraph a day. By the end of the year, you're going to have 360 paragraphs. Yeah. So yeah. it's, I'm more into consistency than sitting down and having a burst of, oh my, everything is coming out and I'm writing thousands and thousands of words and all of that. No, I, I plug away at it consistently. And that's how I get anything done at all. 
No, that's great. And uh, I think that's a really nice way of doing things, having all these ideas that you can draw on. And yeah, also, I think like you were saying right at the start there, you know, sort of if you get different iterations of the idea that, you know, sort of yeah. Sunday you're writing something, go, this seems familiar. And you look back and go, okay, this is definitely something that's hooked on my brain. I need to yes. develop this more. That's a really nice way of recognizing that and identifying that. So that's wonderful. I, I guess you're you're quite an avid note taker. That's a thick notebook that you've just shown yes, me. Yes, I, I write pretty much anything. So this, I started this because I usually put the dates on it. So I started this on the 6th of April. It's almost wow. finished now. That, so you know, that is probably, is that like an inch and a half thick notebook? That yes, looks, it is, yeah. yeah. About and an inch I, and a half thick, yeah. I don't like lined paper. I like yeah. um, plain paper, be, you know, so I can sometimes sketch. I also, somehow lined paper makes me feel like I'm being restricted in some ways. And I like everything to be free-flowing. Sometimes I draw maps on it. Sometimes I add quotations from other people, that sort of thing. Notebooks for the win. <laughs> yeah. um, but again, I have a separate process for screenplays. Mm. So what I'm writing currently is a screenplay, although I'm doing two things. I'm writing a novel and a screenplay at the mm -hmm. same time. So we can talk about both of them. Yeah. So tell me about your process with screenplays. How, how does that sort of start out? Okay. So with screenplays, I, I like to remain low tech okay. and largely because it helps me to concentrate and it helps me in avoid distractions. I am interested in everything that my eyes come across. So for me, it is best not to be at the computer when I'm trying to plan anything at all, or if I need to concentrate. Basically, what I tend to do is I have for each project, I have a notebook. And again, this is another notebook. I needed this one. If you can see, this is a bit broader than the previous mm. one. The reason it's broader is because for a screenplay, I need to see the whole thing, sketches as well, but I need to see it in my head. This is a heat map. We'll come back to that in a okay. minute. I, to start, I just jot things down without thinking. Okay. Anything that just occurs to me at all, I just write it down. So for this particular one, I kind of sketched out the entire film in very short form in terms of acts. And I just kind of then started writing, what would I like to see in any order in particular? Okay. Maps, I sketch maps and all of that. Like, where is this happening? It's very important for me to know where everything is happening. Mm. The worst thing that I see in people, sometimes their books and sometimes movies, is you have no sense of where am but, I now? Yeah, What's the going geography. On? Because yeah. I, I, you just know that the writer or director has forgotten about the viewer. Like the writer probably knows, mm. but they haven't put in the effort to place the reader or the viewer where things are. Now. So you have that. Then the next thing I do is I start to, again, like I said, it's very low tech, right? I use cards mm. and basically the entire movie, mm. all the scenes and everything, I write them on cards. So the first thing I do is I write them out of order. And if I think of anything that's cool, I'll just write it down. If I think, oh, this will be cool. I'll just put it down. So I put all of the stuff that I want in no particular order down. And I have, which you can't see, but I should have got one ready. I have a big, a, a massive sheet of paper where I then just put like a flow diagram. This happens, then this happens. It's really no frills. It's just saying exactly what happens. This happens here, this happens here, and this is the end. Once I have that, then I start to put the cards in order. I put the cards in, you know, in sequence. This is how the story is going to be told. Once I have them in sequence, and they're cards, so I can flip them around anytime I want to. But when I have a sequence I'm happy with, then I do the heat map thing. Now. What's a heat map? So one of the problems you get from people, especially in films, for example, is that there's what we call the lag in the middle, the second act lag. Mm. 
All right. And it happens in novels as well. The person knows how the story starts. They know the ending, but the middle, like there seems to be this wasteland in the middle of the narrative that they just don't know what to do with. So basically what I do is take the events in order of, the only word I can use is coolness, but mm. let's just say strike what is striking. And I put them in order of what is striking so that every time there's an event, the next event is a step up. Right. And the next event from that is a step up. You don't do events. And it's even as, as mechanical as rating them from one to 10. Basically, I'll tell myself, how striking is this thing on a scale of one to 10? And if you're a five, we don't have a 10 and then come back down to a five mm. anymore because you've already seen a five. It will bore the reader or the viewer. So basically, things will happen that are surprising. But the next surprising thing has to be more surprising than the previous thing and so on. So that's what I call the heat map. The heat map tells me where should this incident go? Where does this go? Where does this go? If you put this at the end, will it feel anticlimactic? Because you've actually shown something really cool earlier on and mm. can't come back from that. I determine what needs to happen. What needs, and even if it's not chronological, sometimes it leads me to fracture the narrative because, okay, actually this is cooler than this. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to fracture the whole thing so that we can get this at this point in the yeah. viewing experience rather than at this point. Yeah. Right now I'm writing, the film I'm writing right now is a biopic. And as you can imagine with biopics, there's lots of boring stuff and there's lots of non-boring stuff. And you have to decide, okay, what am I going to do? You have to merge some characters. For me, what I did for this thing is I just looked at the person's life all the way through. I said, okay, fine. You know what? What's exciting here? And just extracted all the exciting bits. And then I did my heat map and I just arranged the exciting bits so that they rise as the narrative goes along. Mm. And I realized that, okay, so this is what I need to do here. I need to merge these two people so that they're one person so that I can manipulate them better and so on. And of course, I don't want to write something that will be boring to me. So mm. if I'm writing something and I've done the exciting stuff already and I'm just doing boring stuff, that's not the part of me that likes writing. I don't like doing that at all. Mm. I want to go along the journey as well, at least on the first draft, because that's what it is. The first draft is for you, the writer. Subsequent drafts are for whoever else is going to look at them. So I have to arrange it according to that heat map. And that's, that's what I do. And for this film in particular, for example, that I'm writing right now, I really, I'm enjoying it because of those plans, because of how I have arranged, you know, arranged things. I'm just really enjoying it. So once I've done that, I tend to use fade in. I don't use final drafts. Again, I try to shrink the number of tools available. If I could use a typewriter, I would, right? I try to shrink the number of tools available because all of those blinking lights, they can distract from the actual art of just doing the story. I'm not saying it's not, you know, it's good for some people, I suppose, but not for me. For me, fewer is better. I don't want any distractions. I just want to, let me just do the thing as mechanically as I can. The blinking lights will come later. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get the temptation of the internet when you're on a computer. It's like, well, I've got the whole world's information. I can just exactly. double check a, a, a thing. And then before you know it, you've gone down a rabbit hole and you haven't written anything for an hour and a half. Yes. And that's a good segue into research. How much research do you do? I was going to go on to it. I was going to actually say that as a question. Yeah. How do you uh, deal with research? All right. So I, I do three stages of research. I do preliminary research, which is, is this a viable idea? at all. 
especially if it's science fiction, does the science support this thing I am about to do? If it does, I go ahead. If it doesn't, I go back to the drawing board. How much can I fracture the science for the sake of the narrative? Uh, because again, never let research get in the way of a good story. The important thing is that you know what it is and then deliberately break it rather than you don't know what it is and just write what the hell you want. Yeah. Because I think people can tell the difference. Readers will be able to tell the difference. For me, I believe that readers are not stupid. So I try to treat them with respect. So even if I'm doing something that is different, I basically hint that actually I know what it should be, but this is a narrative thing. And then the reader should be able to pick that up from just the whole context and the whole experience. So I do that. I don't go too deep into research because again, research can get in the way of actually writing. You can actually decide, I'm going to spend my time doing research. And then six months later, you haven't even started the book. Yeah. I just do preliminary research and then I start. I just jump off a cliff and you know what? The parachute will open one way or the other. So I start. Okay. So the, the second type of research I do is ongoing research. In other words, I'm doing something. I'm like, will this work? And I quickly check something. I don't get bogged down. And I just quickly check. And then I go back. If I can't find the answer quickly, I do it anyway. And I'm like, I'll come back to this. And I just do it. Because I don't want to slow down the momentum of actually writing something. And then the third kind of research I do is when I have finished the first draft. When I finish the first draft, I can then go down as many rabbit holes as I think are necessary. Because I've actually done the work of at least creating a block, and then I can mm. start chipping away at it to find the statue within. So for me, most of the research is done after the first draft. Yeah. So to see what supports the plot. Yeah. Now that's a really, especially with science fiction, I think it's a really good way of dealing with it. It's like find the MacGuffin, find what you actually need yeah. to move the plot forward, and then find if there's any equivalency, either existing or I being developed. Thought of. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really good. And I, th I think you really feel that in Far From the Light of Heaven as you know, the way that the sleep pods uh, sort of like put together and that sort of form of cryogenic sleep process yeah. for, for long-term space travel. It feels very grounded. It's not just, oh, we've found a way to stop time. Um, it's not like the <laughs> yeah, Red Wolf that. thing. Um, that always bothered me, to be honest with you. It always bothered yeah. me, like, well, come on, this is not going to work. And you yeah. cannot just freeze human beings. That's We're not like Pop-Tarts. You can't <laughs> just freeze and then thaw us out. Yeah. That's not going to work. So I, I think it's one of those things like um, faster than like travel that science fiction has just said, okay, you know what? We're just going to leave it. Like, yeah, they went into cryosleep or yeah, they went to suspended animation and they woke up and all of that. Yeah. yeah, it is something that kind of bothers me when you have people are going through light speed, like back and forth, and then going back to their home planet. And people are like, and we, yeah, we saw you last week. And I was like, yeah, hundreds of years would have passed. <laughs> it's just everyone you knew is dead. This is the thing, like, and this is what sometimes happens is that people are writing science fiction, but they're writing science fiction from having studied science fiction and not yeah. the science. Yeah. So all they've really done is they've, watched a lot of science fiction TV and read a lot of science fiction novels. So they are replicating other yeah. people's conceits rather than the actual science. I did not want to do that at all. I studied space travel, the history of space travel. I studied actual space. I studied space psychology. I said, I'm going to pretend I've never seen Star Trek or anything at all. I'm just going to say, okay, what would this be like? Like Star Trek, again, what they were thinking of submarine warfare is what they were thinking of. And even the atmosphere was all about that sort of thing. And I saw the, the longer version of Das Boot for the purposes of kind of understanding the idea of being locked, locked tight in this small space with nowhere to escape and everywhere around you is death. You know, if you go out, it's death. If you surface, there are allied bombers that are going to kill yeah, you yeah. in here. There are people that you hate, but you have to live with them or you have to make it work somehow. So I studied all of that, you know, because I wanted to have that 
unique feel of, okay, what would it possibly be like? And of course, I studied hours of footage of the ISS, hours, mm -hmm. because I'm like, we have people living in space. We should really be studying that yeah. in my detail if we want to write about people who are in space. That's, you know, that's, that's what I did. Yeah, that comes across. That it, you know, it does come, like, you know, authentic characters with authentic emotional and psychological responses. To, Thank you. I'm glad, that, I'm glad that shows at least that is, that is very gratifying. Good. And moving on to the Daily Graph. Now, we've touched on it slightly, how first thing in the morning is your best sort of creative writing time. And it's low tech. It might be uh, longhand. It might be just yes. paired back computer systems. Are you someone who tries to write a specific passage? Because you... Obviously, you plan out a lot. You have your flow charts and you put things in sequence. Once you've got your plan in place, is it, right, I just want to get this scene down today or just a rough draft of this scene? Or is it just, I'm going to do a couple of words or I'm just going to write as much as I can before someone knocks on the door and see how far I get? All right. Um, okay. how, how do you structure your writing session? Okay, again, it depends on if it's screenwriting or prose. So with screenwriting, usually I have a page limit because prose is done in words, but mm. screenwriting is done in pages because a page is seen as like a minute of screen time. Yeah. That's just what, what they say and all that. In a day, I can write between three and five pages a day. Recently, and by recently, I mean just since last week, I've been able to write 10 pages a day, wow. which I've never been able to do. But that happened because... Like I told you, I really got into it from the planning that I did. I, I really got into the project. And I'm like, wow, I, I really need to get this down. I really need to get this down. So I was able to do 10, 10 pages a day for about four days, which is very unusual and led to my fingers aching. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I don't give myself scene limits. I give for screenplays page limits. And for prose, I would generally say I'm going to write a thousand words. And basically I'm sitting down, I'm like, I'm not moving until I write a thousand words. So I just sit down and I just do that. And now it might not be a thousand good words, but there will be a thousand words. And it doesn't matter if they end mid scene or if I finish yeah. several mid scenes, I will just keep going until I have a thousand words. And what that does for me is it allows me to be able to tell an editor, I know when this will be done. Mm. Or, you know, if someone's commissioned something, I can say, okay, I, I can tell you when I'll get done with this. And I can tell my agent, okay, this book will be done by blah. And I'm rarely wrong about when I can do that because I literally just sit down and do it. I don't romanticize. It's work that has to be done. I sit down, I get it done. Yeah. And are you someone that when you start your writing session, you go back and reread what you wrote the day before? Or do you finish a writing session and maybe write a little summary just to go, this is where I need to go tomorrow? No, no I don't do any of that. I don't look what I've done and I don't think of where I'm going. I just sit down and I stay in the moment. And I, even if there are inconsistencies, even if I know there are inconsistencies. I leave them in there. I just, I don't care. I'm writing the first draft. doesn't need to be perfect. doesn't need to be pretty. It just needs to be. My only job in the morning is for it to be, to create something that is. It can be as ugly as anything. I don't care. It might be beautiful. I don't know. But all I need to do is get it done and leave. That's all. I don't care about consistency at that point or spelling or how pretty it is yeah. or anything like that. I don't care about what I'm going to do the next day. I don't care about what happened yesterday. None of that is important. The only important thing is get a thousand words out. Are they done? Good. I'm off to have my breakfast. That's it. 
That's actually, I was just thinking when you write so early in the morning, some people say there's that, that half wakefulness where, you know, the dream like brain waves are still fogging around and it aids that creativity. So it is very much you roll out of bed, you get there and you write before you have breakfast, before you have a tea or anything. It's anything just, at all that might wow. stick to the imagination. I don't, you know, just go do it and ignore everything until it's done mm. and then start your day kind of thing. Yeah. And then I guess it really frees up your day. Like you were saying earlier about your afternoons, you might do revisions and research. Yeah. So what sometimes happens, occasionally what happens is I, if I don't make my word count, then I'm going to steal time in the day. To, before the end of the day, I will make it. But if I don't make it in the morning, because sometimes your brain just does not work, you yeah. just nothing, it just doesn't work at all. So I stick at it until I run out of any kind of time yeah. and then I have to start the rest of the day, but I will steal time in the day to finish. And even if it means you can squeeze out a paragraph somehow, <laughs> yeah. the trick is not to care about quality. Mm. That isn't the trick of it. The trick yeah. of first drafting is to not care about quality. Just get the words out. All yeah. right. Get the words out. Let them be trite. Let them be campy or corny or overblown or whatever, just get them out there. You can fix stuff that exists, mm. but if it doesn't actually exist, then there's nothing you can do. Yeah. And I guess having day job is the sort of spoken aspect, I think, for a lot of writers is just writing can be great and it can be award-winning and the recognition is wonderful, but in the modern economy, we need to make ends meet. There are you know, sort of multiple people working the day jobs. By being able to write in that way, it allows you to function around your work hours. That is true, apart from very few of us who can just write and make enough money out of it and all that, which is probably like 0.1%. We, we can't all be John Harris, so we can't yeah. be Margaret Atwood. Even if you're looking at it statistically, it's an unrealistic expectation. But what is realistic is to be, is to diversify. So I know people who, they're prose writers, but they've gone into game writing or screenwriting like I have, for example. And I personally find screenwriting, at least financially, a lot more rewarding because they pay you whether they make the film or not. You could write like a 30 minute TV episode and it pays you more than your last novel did. You know, why would I not do that? You're still using your creativity. You're still writing. You're still crafting stories, which is the thing you enjoy. And they're paying you money for it. Why would you not? So people just diversify. Some people write for, you know, they write for games. They just look for something that will help them do the thing that they love doing. Yeah. And one thing I do want to talk about, because I feel it hits every writer at a certain point during the project, is imposter syndrome and the feeling of, I'm going to get found out on this project that I'm not a good writer or what am I doing? It's just not coming. Does that hit you on every project? And if so, how do you tend to deal with it? Okay. So I come from very practical stock where you do the thing. You can feel the feels as a separate matter, but you do the thing. You have a job to do, get it done. And if that job is writing, you do the writing. You do it like a plumber goes to do their job every day. Like a farmer has to get up and get onto the tractor and till the land and feed the pigs and do whatever you need to do, regardless of how you feel about it. You do the thing. And then you can have the feelings when you're having your coffee or whatever, like when you're having your break and all of that. Or when you're talking about things like, oh, I wish I was in the theater, but you still go and feed the pigs. I don't have this. Some people have a thing, which I generally tend to call the weight of writing, which they feel like, oh, there's this writing. It's this thing, this ephemeral thing is the weight of the artist and the suffering artist and all of that stuff. I don't have any of that because 
I know what writing is from my perspective. It's a set of skills that you hold. And if you're not good at some aspect of it, there are ways of getting good at those things. So you can do those things to get better at those things. If your writing is very mechanical, you can start to read and study poetry in order to change the nature of the kind of writing you do, because basically stuff has to go in for stuff to come out. And I know that the stuff that needs to come in is reading. If you feel like somehow your prose is anemic and it doesn't have stuff like facts or knowledge and stuff, you can read stuff and then it will change the prose as well. I know this because I've done it. The point is, I don't agonize over the identity of a writer. I, I don't do that. I'm not saying I never did it. It's just that I learned over time that it's a waste of time. There is no point agonizing over it. Um, everything else I do, I just do. I get into a car and I drive. I don't ask myself, am I a good driver? I know. I just get into a car and I go where I need to go. I know I'm not a good I know I didn't do that three-point turn very well. I know that that's going to happen. I'm driving and I'm hoping that there's no camera or there's nobody watching <laughs> because I know that I just made a mistake there or I shouldn't have done that. So everybody knows their own capability that, okay, I'm not really good at this thing, but I'm some sort of good. And I can probably get by with it. The thing that makes me more able to just get on with it is that I realized that so the bookshelves have been a really big part. I'm not going into my origin story, but the bookshelves have been a really big part of my decision. Well, hang on, I could have written something better than that. This is really, I can do better than this book that is on the shelf. When I realized that, then I realized, okay, fine. You know what? It's not just about the quality. There are other things. If that's the case, I can start writing too then. What I can tell you is I am as good as anybody out there and as bad as anybody out there. And I just get on with it. I don't agonize over my identity as a writer. I don't. Some days it's crap. But I know that even days when I write the crap, like I'm, I'm going to revise that crap at some point. So I can turn that crap into what it should be. I can, if I make the effort, if I wait long enough, if I make the effort, if it's strange to me so that I can make it better, I can do that. And maybe that, I won't. Yeah. It will be successful to a greater or lesser extent, but I am just a human being. Yeah. I am not Trollop. I am not Wolf. I'm just me. You mentioned there that you can make it better. That segues yes. beautifully onto the third act of this interview, which is the editing, the classic adage, writing is rewriting. So are you someone who, once you've finished your first draft, your messy vomit draft of just got it down with all its inconsistencies, do you then look to write a completely new draft and have old draft on one side and new draft on the other? Or do you like to read through, make annotated notes and then work on individual sections and scenes? Okay. So the very first thing I do when I get to the end of any draft of anything at all is go to my calendar. So once I finish the thing, I go to the calendar one exactly one month after I finish it and I put revise X that I've just finished today okay. and I put there revise X. If you look at my calendar, it's full of the names of stories that need to be revised and when. And in, in my head, I will know that, okay, this is coming up, this is coming up, this is coming up. And I will have an idea how long I might need to revise it. So it may not be exactly a month because if I see that, okay, this thing is too close to them. I'm not going to fit. I won't have finished. I move it so that there, there will be enough time. And usually the longer you can wait, the better you can actually edit something. By the way, I don't like using the term edit for this. I, I like the term revisions okay. because I think editing is a different thing. Editing is what your editor actually does. I, I believe that edit, edits come from someone who is different from the actual okay. writer. I think revisions are what writers do. But I know that the current term or the current language we like to use yeah. is editing. It's just the, the pedantic in me. No, that's fine. You can do edit, revisions. The pedantic in me yeah, wants to. That's good. This is, these are different skills. But I know that that's what people say. So I wait for a month. So once the day has arrived for me to edit X, 
the first thing I do is print it out. I, I print it because again, I write in longhand, I transcribe it. And then on the day I want to edit, I print it out. And the first thing I do is just read it all the way through. All right, I just read it through and reading it through tells me how much work I have to do. Usually by the time I've read it through, I'm like, oh crap, this is going to take a long time. <laughs> it's going to take a really long time. It gives me an idea because I, from reading it, I can tell, okay, I'm going to need to do this minute stuff. I need more research. I really just flubbed it here or whatever. I can tell from that first read. Then as soon as I finish that, I do a second read immediately afterwards. And the second read, I go with a red pen. And the red pen is me noting what needs to be done. Once I've done that, I use a notebook. I take my notebook and then I write everything that I've written in red pen into the notebook. All right. And what I end up with is a document with a sequential list of things that need to be done on this manuscript. And I am pretty rigid about that. I follow that list line by line. Right. So I do everything that's, I'm just like, okay, fine. You know what? You mix the name of this person with this person twice. Yeah. And it usually has notations as in it's on this page and all of that. So I literally just go back and I, I change all of that. I'm very didactic about that. I go through it all the way like that. Once I've made that correction, I now have what I would call a second draft. And then I print that. And then I read that. And I start to then go to broader. By this point, I've got a manuscript that is consistent. So like it doesn't, I haven't thought terribly about the pacing or anything, just consistency. The names are consistent. The events actually make sense and the geography is right. And people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Okay, fine. I have a plot that kind of vaguely makes sense. I can now start reading it for refinement. Is it clear where they are? Is it clear what this person is feeling? We're at this point and I want a reader to feel this, but then what do I need to do before this point to make this be the feeling that comes into the reader? So I go back and I start threading those things through the narrative so that when anybody reads it, by the time they're here, they have the exact emotion that I want them to have about this person's either death or killing someone or breaking up or whatever. You know, you need to have that. And then sometimes it's the opposite thing where actually by the time you get there, the reader hates this character and you're like, okay, what do I need to do? So you go back and you realize, all right, because you've had them do these things, you know, nobody's going to have sympathy for them. So that sometimes actually create a new character to do those bad things so that it takes it off the main character. I get a character that will do those bad things and I can punish that character for doing it. So that there's narrative justice <laughs> because you really realize, okay, look, it doesn't need to be the main character who does those things. They just need to get done. So if someone else does them, I can punish someone else and the main character remains pristine and so on. Those are the kinds of things I start going back and forth. So I ask myself, okay, they're here, but does it make sense? So things to do with battle scenes, for example. And there's a thing about battle scenes that is very important. And battle scenes and fight scenes, they're different in scale, but they're essentially the same thing. What you need to understand is who's fighting, what resources do they have, and where are they fighting? If those three things are not clear, the scene will not work or your fight will not work. All right. For example, two people are fighting. Are they fighting in an alleyway, in a house or something? Is one of them larger and stronger? Those are resources. And is the other one cunning? Resources. The actual process, the mechanics of the fight is a matter of the use of resources until one basically overcomes the other. Or mutually, mutually assured destruction. They might both not survive because they might be fighting a full of yeah. a cliff or a building and both die, for example. And then all resources go to zero. But it's the same thing if you have a large battle scene with cavalry and 
its resources moving from one side to the other on a location. You have to know what the location is so that you can see the battle in your head. You have to know who's got what. And in the process of the battle, are they losing resources? Are the arrows running out? Is this strong person's power running out? Are they injured and bleeding out? So what really happens in the head of someone who is either watching a fight scene or reading a battle scene or whatever is there are counters in their head that are winding down. Okay, the, the strength is winding down or the bullets are running out and all of that. People don't think about this thing, but that's actually what's going on. So I have to make sure that all of that is clear in the, the fight scenes or the battle scenes. And when you have unsuccessful fight scenes or battle scenes or action scenes, it's usually because people don't know where they are. They don't know who has resources or it's too blurry what's going on. And then you just do the ending. And the person who is reading it or viewing it feels cheated. It was like, well, how did that happen? And these are often subconscious things. They're not things that people think about. They think, oh, this was a really good battle scene. And yeah. it's one of the reasons, like a film like Mad Max Fury Road, mm. it's one of the reasons it's very good because they keep you geographically grounded. They tell you what you have and the objective is very clear. It's very easy to keep track of the number of bullets. The, you know, like they make it yeah. very clear. So one of the things I do is to make sure that happens, for example. Once I've done all of these broader things, pacing matters and all of that, once all of that is done, then I go back to the beginning and I do what is the most tedious aspect of it. The line by line checking each sentence, does this convey what you want it to convey? Every single sentence from the beginning to the end, which is, it's really tedious, but it has to be done, obviously. And so you do that. Once that is done, then I have the first draft that I can send to my agent or my editor. Like, okay, look, book's done. Here it is. That's usually what I do. That actually just answers the next question I had lined up, which is once you've done all your revisions, who is the next person to read it? It's either your agent or your editor, but you don't have any kind of beta readers. Your wife doesn't read it. It goes straight to the agent or the editor. Okay. It depends because it's, again, it's a very big thing to give someone 400 pages of prose and say, can you read this? One of the things that I found very useful because I do have someone who has dyslexia who reads my work before as a kind of beta reader sometimes. And I find that works very well because if I've written it and someone with dyslexia can understand it, then I feel like, okay, I've done my job because it's now understandable. So it's got all the complexity I want but it's also understandable by most people. So that kind of works out for me in, in that way. I don't always use beta readers, no. It is a burden, it, it's work. It's work to say, look, unless I just want a lay person to read it to see, does this make any sense at all? Can you just read this? The first 20,000 words of a novel are the most difficult for me because I don't know if this thing has legs or not. So I, I will often write 20,000 words and send it to writer friends and say, well, look, can you just read this to see, does it have legs? Would you want to know what's happening next? Is it interesting? Do you want to know more? No, or is this boring? And yeah. I have some friends who I know will tell me, like, this is rubbish. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, I have friends who will tell me. I'm usually a lot less confident in the first 20,000 words because I don't know. It's interesting to me, but will it be interesting to just about anybody? So at that point, I often, I would just say, you know what, here's 20,000 words. What do you think? To a few people. And if enough thumbs ups come back, then I just continue. But I don't, the whole book itself, I often don't. <sighs> Because I read obsessively myself, I feel like I can tell if it's horrible. Far From the Last of Heaven was a bit of a different beast there, but because I wrote it during the pandemic and one thing that happened to me in the pandemic is that my normal meter was off. Like a lot of things were off, but my meter of what am I doing? What's good? What's bad? It was off. That 
the book that got published was a lot shorter than what I'd already written. I went off on a tangent, not necessarily a tangent. It was related, but not related enough to the main storyline. It was really big and everything because I was interested in lots of stuff. There was stuff about the origin of flight, not even space flight, actual just aeroplanes oh. and all of that. There was all kinds of stuff in there, which I found interesting, but I was like, really? I lost my way. <laughs> and I knew, but, but the thing about it is I knew I'd lost my way. So I, I spoke to a friend. I'm like, look, I know the story is in here, but I'm lost. I'm too close to the cold face. I'm staring at this thing. I'm still blind. Help. And the person just came back and said, just stick to everything that relates to the ragtime and to this. And that kind of just immediately, I didn't even need detailed notes. Once the person said that, I said, yeah, you're good. And I just cut ruthlessly. It's like the lights went on again. And so the fog mm. cleared and I just, I was able to then to, yeah, this is what needs to be in it. This doesn't need to be here and all of that. And that was fine. That is actually the first time that has ever happened to me. But I blame the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. I blame the pandemic because it just changed too many things. Even my editor was not on point because yeah. it took a long time to get any notes back from the editor and all of that. So it was, it was, yeah, it was difficult from that perspective, but. We were surviving. It was a survival yes. mode. So yeah, a exactly. lot of. As extra additional things and trying to be creative in a time when you're reacting to things and you just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen yeah. next week or next month. So yeah, it was tough. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, across the industry, like you're saying, like even with your editor, it was tricky. I do want to talk about editors because obviously you've mentioned how editing is what an editor does and revisions is what you do. Yeah. So you're experience with editors and what you like about you know receiving feedback from editors and maybe what's more challenging okay. certainly that's evolved over time now you've had several anthologies that you've been in several novels out how do you view the editing process and do you have the same reaction every time you get edits back no it's different okay first of all Editing has not remained static. So what editors used to do is not what they can do anymore. So editors are becoming themselves overworked and therefore are not, in my opinion, able to do the kind of things that they used to do, that I used to experience from them. They're, they're not, I mean, it's not that they're not willing, mm. but when your workload increases, something has to give. It's not, I'm not saying it's their fault. Philosophically, how I view editors is this. So the first draft is for me. Subsequent drafts that I write are usually for my imagined reader. I see editors as people who are optimizing it for an audience. So I may have a reader, like a vague theoretical reader in my head, but editors know an audience. Mm. Because I actually believe if you're publishing, they have an audience in mind when they're publishing and they know what their audience needs or what they usually buy. And let's not fool ourselves. This is a business. It's a business. Because if I wanted to, I would just self-publish stuff and mm. I would not have anybody do anything. I would just, just self-publish and I will be the boss of all bosses and say, yeah, this is my book. You buy it or don't buy it. I like it as it is. But if you're going to be publishing in the marketplace, then you have to do what the people who buy books want you to do, you know, yeah. to an extent. Editors in my mind represent, they represent the needs of the audience, the needs of the market, the book buying audience, mm. basically. And of course... They pick up all the blind spots and all of that. I think my early experiences of editors was, was a short story for an anthology. And I was so excited at getting published that I didn't bother to look at the edits. I just said, I accepted all the edits without even thinking. <laughs> and I then saw the published story and I hated it because of changes that were made, but I couldn't complain about it because I accepted them. And I knew 
from the start that, okay, it's my prerogative to decide, okay, you know what? I don't like this or I like this sentence and everything. So I accepted them without thinking and I hated the stories. I'm like, okay, lesson number one, always look at the, <laughs> yeah. always look at the edits. Don't get too excited about the actual sale, the editing is part of the work. Looking at the editing is part of the work and all of that. So subsequently, I would look at the editor carefully before going on and all that. There aren't, so in a lot of the anthology markets, for example, there are some editors who are good and there's some who just don't really do anything at all. And it's really disappointing, but they don't really do anything at all. When you get a good editor, it's nice because you get, you know, get all these questions. Is this what you want to say here? Do you want to say this and all of that? I can be argumentative. In one of the Rosewater books, I had an elevator that was moving sideways and the editor had just put question mark in a kind of almost sarcastic way, sideways elevator and stuff like that. When you respond, you respond in comments, you're like, yeah. you use the comment function. So in the comments function, I put in this really long, like I'm talking about almost a thousand words of comment <laughs> of citations and questions like this is already happening. Yeah. And what I tend to use in my books is science that already exists. Yeah. Maybe I'll extrapolate slightly, but they already exist. So I just went to my research folder, grabbed that thing. And of course I was angry. So I put all of it in, I, I Copy and paste. It in, in the last book that I just did, an editor said something about, oh, I put the word, something to do with the word flank and all of that. And she either misread it or thought it had to do with the butcher or anything like that. And it just irritated me because the person, it's like this person is trying to say that I don't know my English and everything. So I just basically copied the entire entry of the Oxford dictionary, <laughs> put it in the comments. Look, they're human. Editors are human. But when I'm going through edits, I'm waiting for stuff that I actually need to change. And when I come across something like that, it's like, what do you think I don't you think I can't speak the language? Like yeah. that just irritates me because I use words very carefully and I yeah. use them deliberately. So sometimes I get irritable and when I'm irritable, I just throw in all the citations, like, no, this is why I'm doing this and all of that. Sometimes, you know, obviously they pick up things that I, you know, I hadn't thought of before. An example is something like using terms that, that's in language rather than out language. For example, in boxing, there's a move called a slip and it's basically someone that's trying to punch you and you just basically move into the punch rather than dodging or blocking. You move yeah. into the punch and then you counter, you hit back. And anybody who does boxing, any who's ever been in a ring or sparred or anything like that if you've been into a gym you will have heard that term but generally people have not i'd use that term in there as if because i you know i box sometimes like mm. none of the general reading public will yeah. know that it was a fair point for me that was just the most accurate way to describe what happened but i realized yeah. okay yeah fair point okay fine so i just actually described it all so it's things like that yeah and sometimes they're in a hurry sometimes they're not <sighs> I like and respect the role of the editor. I think this is what we need to do for it to get to a general audience and all of that. Sometimes I wish there was more rigor, that's all. Yeah. If I've written something and I have to start explaining to you why it's correct, I see that as wasting my time. I'm like, I should not be spending my time explaining to you why this is correct. You should have looked it up. You're the editor. Yeah. I think sometimes when it is so well researched, you have that burden of knowledge where you, you know all the uh, industry specific jargon for that specific area that, that's being referenced. And yeah, the editor's just going, okay, we want mainstream audiences who are, aren't professional boxers, haven't boxed, or exactly. aren't you know, NASA engineers and uh, haven't got yeah. an understanding. So yeah, I, I, I can see both sides of the argument with that. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, you mentioned there about with short stories and different anthologies and different editors and varying degrees of how much they edit as well as finding the marketplace for your novels. Yes. Now, screenplays are far more collaborative 
And yes. it's yeah, it's the old joke of as much as a novelist may be lauded as the author of a piece, the screenwriter on a film or a TV show, maybe not TV, TV is slightly elevated, but lower in the pecking order. Um, yes. And having the actors interpret and having you know, the producers wanting certain and the director's things. vision. Yeah, yeah, the director's vision, exactly all of that. How do you find that process and seeing your story being interpreted multiple different ways? Easy. They pay me. I don't <laughs> care. I don't care. They pay me to do a job. I do the job. The first draft of a screenplay that I submit, that's the art. That's where I do all the art. Mm. Everything else is going to change and all of that. I honestly, I'm fine with that yeah. because they paid me for it. And here's a funny, it's a strange thing because, for example, if you, if a movie gets made and it gets critically panned, it'll usually go, they usually, the director is the one who has to face the flak. The director mm. and the actors generally have to face yeah. the flak. I'm interested in the screenplay. So if a film fails, I always want to know who wrote it. Mm. And I don't know what else they've written, but generally speaking, since they're going to catch the flack, they have to have the right, you know, to change the thing to suit their vision. Yeah. I'm completely in support of that. You can't give someone responsibility without giving them control. Yeah. If you say, here's a film, and if people often don't understand what a film is. They think it's just this piece of art that you watch. That's not what a film is. That piece of art is the end product of a business. Each mm. film that you ever see is a business with so many different aspects and multiple movie parts and it employs so many people it is a business that has to function from the beginning of the screenplay all the reward to to beyond the publicity basically okay yeah it's a business all right i mean it's a temporary business because they finish that business and everybody packs up and they go and do another business but it's a business what we see on the screen is a really tiny part of the whole yeah. of all the labor that goes into it who the hell am i to say that i can control that just because yeah. i wrote the script yeah. I am part of the business. I do my part and they pay me for my part. <laughs> yeah. It's very important. Not They don't just pay me. They pay me well. They pay me and they put my name on it. What else? You know, I'm also a minor business because I pay my agent. I pay my entertainment lawyer. I pay my WGA fees. You know, so I'm part of a business in that sense. Yeah. If I want control over something, and that has actually happened with this current screenplay project. So what happened while I was doing the research is that I got an idea for a novel while I was writing the screenplay and I realized that, okay, you know what? I want to control how this story comes out. It has to be a novel. It can't be a screenplay. I can't have anybody fiddle with how I want this story to be told. Mm. So as soon as I finished the screenplay, well, actually I've already started the novel in, you know, I'm writing it concurrent, but it, but I know that, okay, the screenplay, I can't control how it turns out. The book, I can. Mm. And with so many different projects that you work on, like you were saying earlier with your calendar, you've got all these different marks of when you go back and revise different projects. Yes. Once a project's finished, do you have any kind of celebrate, like it's signed off, either you've been paid for the screenplay, the anthologies coming out, the proof copies for your novels that are out. Is there any point where you actually have a ritual ending of that to sign off that project? Is it just like... A big sigh of relief and moving on, or is there like a grieving period of oh, I've spent all this time with these characters and I'm not going to be with them anymore, or is it just I'm just going to have a drink, one project down onto the next one? How, how I, do they end? I don't get romantic about it. Okay, <laughs> I don't get romantic about it. I, I do the work. This happens. I finish this tomorrow morning. I write the next thing. It's not to say that I don't see the romance and the art of writing itself. I do, but I suppose like. I feel like sometimes the romance of it can slow you down from actually doing stuff. 
And I realized that actually it is in the doing of it that the art comes out. It is in the actual doing of it. I'm a very, I'm a big fan of uh, Michael Jordan and you can see his artistry in the way he plays, but how he gets there is really mechanical. He goes and he practices things mm. and he practices and he practices. Early Tiger Woods was the same. He would take the ball to a very awkward angle and he would practice that hundreds of times so that if he's playing and the ball falls into a really awkward position, he's not bothered. His face is just blank. He just yeah. goes there and does it because he's practiced it so many times. Yeah. And it looks like art to us because we are seeing the final product of lots and lots of shots that he's taken. Yeah. Hundreds, maybe thousands of shots that he's taken. And for me, what I want to have done is to have taken those shots metaphorically thousands of times for my writing and not finish, get back into the gym, you know, start yeah. practicing again. That's what I want to do. And for me, what that looks like is continuing the writing, doing reading, reading critical theory, reading other people's books, reading old books, new books, reading lots of poetry, checking sentence structures. What do I like about this particular person? Okay, break down the sentence. Why do I like this person's sentence? Why is this book moving fast when I'm reading it? And this other book is not moving fast compared to two of them. Ah, this is what's going on. That's what I do because I'm actually a fan of writing, mm. of all kinds of writing. I love screenplays. I love novels. I love the art that goes into a poem. It's strange because I find poems to be the most artistic of the writing forms, mm. the most difficult and yet the least appreciated form. I think the reason it's not really appreciated so much is because so many people do it badly. It's like writing humor. It's like writing jokes. Human writing is the most difficult of, in my opinion, it's the most yeah. difficult kind yeah. of writing there is to do because it's so easy to get it wrong, which is one of the reasons Terry Pratchett was a genius. It's so easy to get it wrong. It's hard to do. It is very hard to do, but you read it and you can just read it and it just flows like that. That flow, that easy reading is hard writing. It's very hard to get that yeah. happen. I do what artists do. I study the masters, and I, but I enjoy that. The reason I can do it is because I enjoy it. I like reading critical theory. I like reading obscure things or the origins of words and all of that. But they, then again, that's what makes me lose patience when people try to argue with me about it. It's like, yeah. dude, sorry. I know what I am talking about. I don't yeah. have time to teach you. That's sometimes what irritates me when... Some random person comes and says, oh, you did this and all that. I said, yeah, I know. I studied it. That's yeah. why I did it. And I am correct. And how is it when you've got all these projects and you finish one, you go on to the next one. When it comes to promotion of a project, like it's actually on the shelves. That's quite some time after you finished writing it. Yes. And you may be several projects on. How do you re-familiarize yourself to promote it? <laughs> I think that, so I don't do it in any formal way. I think that because I have, look, a novel is like a child. You live with that novel for a, at least a year and a half. Mm. So you become so familiar with it that it comes back. You might not remember every single sentence, but if someone mentions a sentence from it, you know what it is and you know the context of everything. So I, what I'm saying is as long as I've done the work before, if you ask me a question about any of my projects, I can tell you why that is there, why mm. this is there and all of that. I'm going to tell you why I did pretty much everything and everything I've ever written because it was all done with the intentionality. I didn't ram randomly scribble them. I knew why I did this. And, and that's actually what led to the arguments and editors that I told you about. <laughs> all of it is intentional. So usually I don't do, I don't do any preparation for, for that kind of work. And I try to lean more into questions or at least answers that, that have more to do with writing or science fiction. I try to, when I'm doing the publicity, I try and, I, it's odd because I'm supposed to be drawing attention to myself, but I find it really difficult to do. Yeah. 
I really, I would rather just try and turn it into discussion about science fiction and the mm. works, people's works that have come before that are like similar yeah. to it and all of that. I try not to get into the work itself as in what happened here and all mm. of that. But if the interviewer wants to do that, I can do it. And the other thing that you must know about is that people tend to ask the same questions. So you get bored of it after a while. So at some yeah. point you have to have, you have to find a way to have fun with it, but I don't, I don't prepare for it. I just go for yeah. it. That's why I set up this this whole podcast is ask something new. Yeah, exactly. And this is very yeah. interesting to me. You've done a really good job here. This Thank is really you. Yes, I really feel it's, yeah, I'm really enjoying this interview. I have two questions left. And ironically, as regular listeners all know, I ask the same two questions at the end. And now it's my belief that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. And you've mentioned how with your research, you really go into learn the mechanics of things and you really learn the things that you need to serve the story, as well as read the masters, read the greats, read poetry, read various forms of writing to expand and enhance your ability. Is there anything in a recent project that you finished where you learned something new that you can consciously go, oh, I'm going to apply this to my next project? Yes. Uh all I can tell you is this, I did a piece of research and from that research, I'm going to get a novel and a short story and they're okay. all radically different from each other. Nice. It's a historical thing. It's a part of, it's a part of history that I didn't really know a lot about before. So studying it has been interesting to me. It's been very interesting. I just, just things I just didn't know yeah. anything about, but I can't talk about it because Part yeah, of it is screenplay yeah. and all that. But yeah, what I can say is that from the research has come a book and a short story. I've actually nice. finished the first draft of the short story. And like I said, I've started the book and all of that. Yeah. And is it a certain piece of history? So it's not a person from history. It's a an event in history it's or an period? Era. It's an era in history. But I wasn't well-versed in it. I just knew vaguely. Mm. And on doing the research, I found a lot of things that I didn't know before, but I also found that this could be a metaphor for the present time. Like mm. I found, basically what I found is a way of linking these things that happened way, way, way back to actually what, well, that's exactly what's happening now. So the book in particular, I want to use it to talk about the present times while writing something that's historical. Great. Yeah. Because yeah. that's a very common thread in science fiction is it's always a commentary on the now. Yes. Uh, and it's nice to see that with historical fiction of, you know, if you want to be pessimistic about humanity destined to repeat its failures, but that, that sounds really interesting. I'm not going to pry anymore. But again, I, what I love about these interviews is that they're a snapshot in history and that in a few years, the you short story will be like, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And we'll be like, oh, these things are all linked and this happened in 2022. Yeah. And we understand what was going on in the world at the time we were in. Exactly. That's very cool. And a, a generic question to, to finish this off. Is there one piece of advice you find yourself returning to, to get you through your writing? Is there one thing that you've been told or you've read that really resonated and you apply to your own writing? Read a lot and write a lot. Everything boils down to that in the end. Now, what it means to read, you know, what a lot means is very individual and people can define what they mean by a lot. That's okay. That's individually defined. For me, it means writing every day. And it also means reading every day. I have several books on the go at the same time. I read a lot. I'm very promiscuous with books. I read everything. So it's, yeah, I read a lot, write a lot. That's the one piece of advice that can be universal, regardless yeah. of what your technique, what your method is, mm. how you approach craft or anything. If yeah. you read a lot, you'll know what works and what doesn't work. So when you're writing a lot, you have something in your brain to compare your own writing to. Yeah, it's study. 
Yes. Um, and I'll tell you something else. Mike Tyson. When I was younger, I thought Mike Tyson was just a brute. You mm. talk to him about any of the classical boxers, he knows everything about them. He can talk to you about every Jack Dempsey match. He can tell you how they did the fight, how the particular punches go. He is an expert on boxing. Yeah. I don't know why that surprised me because, of course, he's the heavyweight champion. He was the heavyweight champion yeah. of the world. He studied other boxers. Yeah. And it's, that's the thing. It's not just practice. It is study what was great before. Yes. And what are the through lines? What are the consistent things to pick up and apply to yourself? That's all the time we have, uh, Tade. It's been an absolute pleasure and some really Same interesting, here. unique takes on things that I haven't heard before in interviews. So really good for my listeners as well, that not, not just hearing consistent <laughs> things. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me and listening to me waffle. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> And that was the real writing process of Tade Thompson. Wasn't he lovely? I did really enjoy that. I hope you really enjoyed that. I really want to know which historical era. And as soon as I find out, I'll let you guys know. We're still in a was it a liminal space of social media at the moment. So I will put links to uh, Tade's uh, Twitter as it exists at, at time of recording. And uh, yes, we'll just see how things go. But I hope you're all well, and look after yourselves, and as always, please keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call I will keep you near until the world is and you Never 